I'm Whitney. I'm Danielle. And we are the founders of Sakara Life, on a mission to nourish your body and transform your life. Sakara is a Sanskrit word that describes the action of turning your thoughts into things and manifesting your reality. We believe that who we surround ourselves with, what we watch, what we listen to, what we eat, the information that we take in, impacts the way we think and therefore who we are. The conversations that follow are with bold thinkers who have had an impact on how we view the world, ourselves, and what it means to live the Saqqara life. The intention of these conversations is to push each of us to greater heights so that we can turn our thoughts into things and all shine our light a little brighter. We are so excited to be on this journey with you. Welcome to the Saqqara Life. Today is a very special episode. We are joined by one of my all-time favorite authors, Dr. Wednesday Martin, who is just a firecracker of a woman. I adore her. She is a number one New York Times bestselling author and feminist cultural critic. She received her doctorate at Yale, where she focused on the history of social science, especially anthropology and psychoanalysis. Dr. Martin has also taught at Yale and the New School for Social Research, and today we're going to be discussing her latest book, Untrue. And what makes this episode extra special is we are joined by my husband, Damien. He's my co-host today because he is actually the one that first read her book, Untrue, and thought that I would really enjoy it, which I did. And I highly recommend the book. It really focuses on female sexuality born out of the lens of social scientists who typically have been men and what that means for sexual empowerment for the female gender. So I hope you find this conversation as fun and fascinating as I did. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Wednesday Martin. Wednesday, we are so excited to have you on this special episode of the Sakara Life podcast with my husband along for the ride with me. (laughs) This is great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, you guys, for having me on. Yeah. Well, the first question that we like to start with is, what is your mission? Like, what is, what are you, what is your work here to do? Great question. I love it when people ask me what my life's mission is, (laughs) because there's no pressure. No. Um, My mission in life is to blend science and storytelling to help people, especially people who identify as women, have aha moments about themselves. So I like to use anthropology, which is the cross-cultural studies of human societies, with primatology, which is the study of our non-human primate relatives, monkeys and apes. I like to use those two forms of social science to help people, especially women, like I said, understand why we do what we do, why we want what we want, why we feel what we feel, why we don't like what we don't like, why we struggle with what we struggle with. So really my mission in life is to blend social science and storytelling to set women free. Well, I can tell you I had a lot of aha moments in Did this you? book. And maybe you should broaden that because he, my husband had a lot of aha I had moments. an awful lot of, my only qualification for being here is I'm just a huge fan of yours. Wow. And I read this book and I bought six copies and I started handing them out. I got her to read it. I've had many people read it. So why don't you start off by telling us like, what is this book? What is it about? What was your intention? Sure. Behind it? Well, first of all, Damien, thank you so much for supporting my work and for being interested in female sexuality. 
And the reason I wrote this book is honestly, I'm just so attracted to any science or social science that I can see this would be a great story to tell. This isn't just going to be dull science. I'm going to wrap this up in a delicious candy-flavored wrapper and make it relevant for people. But I'm always drawn to science that disrupts our master narratives, right? Our master narrative, for example, that stepmothers are evil. I wrote a book called Stepmonster because I saw so much social science about how that was just patently untrue. That mothers should be able to do all the heavy lifting by themselves, which is a totally weird culturally specific idea in the United States since about the 1950s. So I wrote my book, Primates of Park Avenue, about that. And this idea that men are from promiscuous and women are from monogamous, that's another big master narrative that kind of motors our culture. So I always want to pick that stuff apart. And it usually comes from personal experience. I wrote Step Monster because I was struggling with being a stepmother. And like a good social scientist, I decided, okay, wait. There's got to be something better than chicken soup for a stepmom's soul. No offense to people who like that kind of writing, but there's got to be something brainy that kind of elevates women who are stepmothers and talks to them like they're smart about their own emotional and social reality. Same with Primates of Park Avenue. I mean, I encountered a really what felt like a, a mean girl mom culture on the Upper East Side. And I wanted to pick that apart and see what the social underpinnings of those behaviors were. So, you know, that came from a hard experience too. And untrue in the same way came from this very hard experience of reconciling what most science was telling me about who I was sexually and who my girlfriends were sexually and, and all women and what we felt like and what our actual struggles day to day were with our sexuality. And, you know, usually if you dig, you're going to find that science changes over the years and there are these new improved explanations uh, for our sexual and social behavior. So that was kind of a long answer to your question, but I hope I answered it. And, you know, this is what I want to say to Damien and other men listening. Whenever we misrepresent who women are sexually, when we say that they're naturally monogamous, uh, when we say that their sex drives are less than men's, when we say that women just need sex less than men do, for example, we're not just profiling uh, women. We're profiling men. Right? It's all of us. We're yeah. all in it together. When you just said, thank you for being interested in female sexuality, that's all of us, right? Like, yeah. We don't have one without the other. It's all in relation. And so in that way. Mm-hmm. They're related. If we say that women are naturally from monogamy because of gamete production, right? We produce this one supposedly coy, choosy egg and men supposedly produce all this cheap, in quotation marks, like bodacious randy sperm right when we say that we're (laughs) we're profiling women as like these zealous guardians of monogamy and we're profiling men as like these dogs who want to have sex with anything that's not nailed down okay how does that damage men they get performance anxiety they feel like if they catch feelings there's something wrong with them they feel like if they don't want sex at every single opportunity they're not men so that's why the science in untrue to me is um, important for for men and women and for people who identify as neither i love that you 
in this entire book, and it sounds like I can't wait to read your other books, but that you really force us to question the things that we believe to be true. I actually studied primatology as my major in undergrad. What? You didn't tell me that. <laughs> and, and so I love the science that you, that you get to in what it means to just watch like our closest living ancestors. Yeah. What it means to watch them do what they do without the cultural relevance and how these narratives unfolded from the patriarchy, from religion, from us just naturally being humans. And I, and I'm sure millions, if not billions of people just go along with the narrative. You don't even think to question that women are less sexually hungry, so to speak, right. mm -hmm. than men. You don't until you start to listen, tune into your own behaviors. And hopefully, like with you, with an interest in science simmering in the background, or in your case, a background in a really relevant scientific field of inquiry simmering in the background. Because the easiest thing is to leave things the way they are, right? Like, And we can see that on the level of leaving alone our very comfortable concepts of who men and women are sexually, right? Or we could look at how easy it is to leave wellness alone. When during Black Lives Matter and during COVID, we saw that wellness was just this ecology where anti-masking and racism and cultural appropriation and all these things were flourishing. And for a lot of white people in wellness, it felt just easier to leave it alone than to have the reckoning that we needed to have in wellness and that we still need to have. So, you know, these moments of just not staying comfortable with what feels uncomfortable are really important moments. I remember talking to one of my favorite primatologists in the world, Dr. Sarah Hurdy, who basically started making primatology for me incredibly relevant and delicious by talking about humans as primates. She told me sometimes when the science, when there's some gap in the science or there's a fork in the road, of the science about female sexuality, and I'm not sure which way to go, I tune into my own experience and the experiences of other women to come down on one side or the other. So I think for a lot of women, the reason that untrue resonated for them is they felt they were living a lie. And little did they know that all the untruths were coming from bad science. And even less did we know that in some cases, literally for decades, Women scientists have been toppling these crazy narratives about who we are sexually. The first one being that women are, quote, naturally monogamous, unquote, and that men are, quote, naturally promiscuous, unquote. Yeah, let's talk about some of that science. Because yeah. there was a particularly poignant thing that I remember Damien pointed out about, and it wasn't in the book, but it was something that he did after further research after reading your mm. book was the T-shirt. Was that not in your book? Oh, maybe. The, oh, was, no. There that's was, in your book, right? The, oh, that's in your book. So I remember the that. Smell study. The smell yes. study. And <laughs> sexy smell. Right, and the piece birth that, control. That was the piece of it, that, that linking up this idea of oh, right. birth control coming into the market in the early 60s and even looking at the numbers of how many women were on birth control when it started in 61, I guess, and that by the 70s or 80s, it had just ballooned. And so off of the T-shirt the study, we're talking about a generation of women that have been somewhat compromised in choosing their own mate. 
Yeah. So let's talk about this. The big context is these series of t-shirt studies that became quite famous. Now, it's important to say that some people have recently said, whoa, hold on, we can't replicate these studies. I heard from somebody Um. asking me for data and information and he told me at this point, which was about two years ago, and then COVID happened, I'm trying to replicate these studies and am unable to. So science is always evolving, is the caveat. Okay, so a group of women were asked to rate how good or sexy a t-shirt that a man had worn was. They didn't know these men. The men had not worn any deodorant. They hadn't used soap for maybe, I don't know how long. Long enough. They Long enough, thank you. And they wore these t-shirts and then these t-shirts were given to women. And the women rated as sexy, sexy smelling t-shirts, the t-shirts worn by men who were very genetically dissimilar to them. Okay, so the t-shirt study is about a phenomenon called heterozygosity. And it's this idea that the more genetically dissimilar we are from a partner, if we're heterosexual, the more likely we are um, to have a robust pregnancy and a robust offspring, right? So what these particular studies found was that women had this ability to sniff out a partner who is a good genetic match in terms of heterozygosity. Now you're referring to studies that show that hormonal birth control can interfere with that. And there seems to be data to support that. So yeah, it's something really interesting. How often do technologies that we develop or science that we develop, how often do they interfere with some of our quote natural unquote abilities to choose a mate? I want to say something you will be very hard pressed to get me to say a bad word about the pill, right? Which women didn't really have access to until the late 60s and unmarried women even later. But the pill literally revolutionized women's lives. And I'm older than you guys. And as the daughter of a second wave feminist, I literally had the privilege of seeing women go from not being able to control their reproduction to being able to control it. And I remember the fights. I mean, what was at stake when we developed the pill was literally women's ability to control their own lives and not be birthing machines. Can I ask you something about that? Yeah, sure. Just to play devil's advocate, I took the pill. I'm grateful for the pill. Now we're learning it's having long-standing implications potentially on women's health and not only women's health, but our health as a population because it lives on in our water, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Wasn't the pill like a necessary evil to get us out of the original narrative that we can't get to know our bodies? Because there are lots of natural forms of birth control that are up to 99.9% effective, like using neem oil and and watching your cycle. But we were never taught that, especially in Western culture. So that's like this disassociation from, I grew up learning that my sexuality was something I keep to myself, that I have to be very careful not to get STDs. Like the first thing I learned about sex is STDs and pregnancy. So it's a lot of fear mongering. You know, the clitoris isn't even in Mm -hmm. textbooks to teach women what their anatomy is like. So it's this disassociation between me and my body. And though the pill was so important and revolutionized so much, isn't it also just kind of born out of so much that you're getting to in this book, which is we need to question like where all these original narratives came from in the first place. I see the pill 
as a science that greatly improved women's lives and that needed to be refined over time like a lot of science. And I don't think it's a, it was a necessary evil. I think the pill was a necessary and wonderful outgrowth of feminism and that it supported women's lives. And I think that it got refined over time. For example, when I was younger and was on the pill, it was higher levels of estrogen. And that's since been refined. I would not, I have a background in science like you do. I personally am not putting my faith in neem oil and other methods of birth control. I'm putting my faith in the science of something like the pill or a diaphragm, that's me. And I think it's important that we had these scientific leaps forward that gave women freedoms, not unlike the freedoms we had when we were hunter-gatherers, right? And we had lower body fat rates and we were walking around all the time. Walking around all the time meant that our interbirth interval was maybe four years. Walking around all the time meant that our body fat stores were lower and we sort of had what some people want, might want to call, quote, natural, unquote, birth control. But I am so grateful for the science that gave us birth control. And here's my feminist intervention in that, my intersectional feminist interest intervention in that, which is Wow, isn't it amazing how we obsessed about birth control for women, for which I'm really grateful, but birth control for men hasn't been nearly as large a conversation and the way we could change the world if we did that. And, you know, the more women are in the fields of developing birth control, the more we're going to see more parity, right? Interventions in male reproductive ability that make birth control, if I could say it, like a more equitable undertaking. But I'm all about the science of birth control. And even though I had some bad experiences being on the pill, in large measure, I consider it incredibly necessary to where we see women today. If we didn't have the pill, we wouldn't see women closing the education gap. Yeah, uh, We wouldn't see, I mean, we still have a really meaningful wage gap, especially for Native American women and Black women and Latina women. But we wouldn't see us making some progress on closing that gap. And sexuality and female sexuality is so tied into everything today, how much money we earn, the family structures that we live in, who our future political leaders will be. Female sexuality plays a role in all of that. It does. And I, I love, I think her name is Sarah, the the woman in your book that you interview who fell in love with another man while, so touching. while she was married. And what stuck out for me was how she felt like something was wrong with her. And yeah. that's so fascinating because what you're saying, the importance of what you're saying around questioning these core assumptions mm -hmm. is do I, even if you decide not to act on non-monogamy non and you can recognize you have feelings that you want to go outside the marriage, mm -hmm. there's a huge difference between saying, oh, something's wrong with me versus, oh, I see those feelings. My, me yeah. and my husband are not ready for that or he doesn't want it. And I can, then I can at least gauge my reaction and what I want to do with those feelings versus... It's such a internalizing of the narrative and yes. blaming of the self that That's is right. so toxic. That happens a lot. It's so funny that you bring up Sarah after the t-shirt study because a lot of scientists believe that women might be in multiple partnerships, whether they're disclosing it or not, right? Whether some people call it, you could call it 
open non-monogamy or closed non-monogamy. I call it disclosed or undisclosed non-monogamy. You're either talking about it or you don't. I don't call it ethical non-monogamy because I don't think it's more ethical. I think that some women are on the DL to find a new partner because they're with an abusive man while other women are privileged and live in Brooklyn where polyamory is acceptable, right? And they're calling it, and I'm like, honey, you're not more ethical. You're just more lucky. So anyway, I don't call it consensual non-monogamy because sometimes it's not consensual, right? My friend Rachel Krantz just wrote a book called Open about how she was pressured into a non-monogamous relationship that turned out to be abusive. But what I'm trying to say is that worldwide, there are episodes, incidences like the case study of Sarah that I shared in which women have more than one partner and they have one partner that's sort of their pragmatic partner, a good person to raise children with, a good person to be social support, a good person to say support her career maybe, a great person in terms of her family being really supportive of that relationship. And they might then have another partner who's like their sexy smell partner, right? So that's one theory about why women, quote, cheat, unquote, is that they might be married to a guy or partnered with a guy with whom they do not have heterozygosity, but he's a great partner in other ways. And then they have this other partner, their sexy smelling heterozygous partner uh, that they're, you know, getting it on. A with. mistress analog. <laughs> exactly. Right? So, that- you know, you, th- with the caveat that these are very kind of clunky, like 1950s ideas about heteronormativity, but a lot of evolutionary biology is about reproduction and reproductive success. So, That's kind of the brew of that science as it's updating itself. But it's important to understand that that might be one of the many reasons that women step out on a full-time official partner. It might be just that the other guy smells really good. And olfaction plays an important role in our sexuality. And that's a wonderful thing. And then we're back to the birth control thing, which is that what it interferes with, it seems from some data, it seems that what birth control can interfere with is our olfaction. So it's all linked. It's all and, linked. And yeah. what you're saying is so, the that women might feel enticed to have another relationship with the, you know, the person that smells the best to them. And therefore they, that like they're heterozygous, they're heterozygous, but that's not who they're having children with. Likely that they're having children with the person who stays at home, et cetera. Yeah. The heterozygosity is about the reproductive sort of fortunes. So are we (laughs) de-evolving? I think what's really important is I love the way you said that Damien, but no, we're not de-evolving. We continue to evolve, but Our sexuality is not about the evolutionary field of adaptation anymore. It's where we're living now, right? So we might have some say, since we spent so much time as a species, as hunter-gatherers, many anthropologists and paleoanthropologists and evolutionary biologists believe like 90% of our time as a species in hunter-gatherer arrangements. Um, Some people believe that, yeah, our sexuality hasn't caught up to this expectation of monogamy. I think the most important thing to say about this is we evolved as super flexible sexual and social strategists. We can thrive in a number of arrangements. And that's one of the reasons that we've been able to thrive with monogamy, right? 
maybe Homo orgaster Australopithecus afarensis wasn't as flexible as sexual and social strategists, right? They weren't maybe doing cooperative breeding. Maybe they weren't having multiple partners and having multiple people help them raise their children. Maybe they didn't have helpers at the nest. Maybe they didn't have these flexible social and sexual strategies. And that's the reason that we're here and they're not. So sometimes our deep evolutionary prehistory and history as flexible sexual and social strategists really serves us. But sometimes it puts us in absolute conflict with our current container, right? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Look at, you guys have two young kids, right? Look at having nannies in New York City, which only very privileged people can afford to do. But honestly, now middle-class families are having helpers at the nest that they hire too, right? We evolved to have helpers at the nest. And when we're in a new context where we move away from our families of origins because our mom and dad might drive us crazy or we don't want Auntie Sue living with us, then we hire our helpers at the nest. We are a species that we can make it work and we do. And sometimes that really is hard on us, sexually speaking. We've been making monogamy work, but as Meredith Chivers, the Canadian sex researcher, said to me when I interviewed her about monogamy, she said, basically, we can make monogamy work and we do make it work, but monogamy for a lifetime does not conform to any model that we have of how we desensitize to a stimulus over time. Can we make monogamy work? Absolutely. Is it going to be much harder for some people? Absolutely. That's a nice context. You know, when you mentioned the idea of being in the place we're in on the back of bad science, you also have a lot in here that's towards this notion, as you said, it's narrative in science, right? So within the notion of narrative storytelling, what about the bad storytelling or you know, what does that mean yeah. when you think back yeah. just from prehistory, right? Our stories, yeah. our first story is about a woman leaving her husband <laughs> and what that means and destroying an entire civilization exactly. because of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you could either be talking about Eve or Helen of Troy, but in the West, those are some of our, uh, yeah, those Were are- Were you some- talking about Helen of Troy? That was my guess. I was, talking about Helen, I was talking about Helen Troy. That, Look at Eve, too. Yeah. Yeah. Eve, sure. She Although messed just, up Eden. She had this great husband and a beautiful house right. in Eden. <laughs> right. just, and she I just it. saw this and great quote. I, I hope I don't butcher it, but it was something where like Eve was made for Adam. Adam wasn't made for Eve. So women, like the whole premise was this idea of like, yeah, men are fulfilled by women, but women don't feel shamed if you're not just fulfilled. And like, maybe that's part of the more like promiscuous kind of bisexual tendency. Like maybe it's Mm -hmm. not just born out of culture and culturative norms. Specifically, the question I want to ask is when you think about a book like this, there's a rewriting here. You write in the introduction, this idea of of changing that narrative storyline about people writing. I think it was in the context of social media and how that's a possibility for mm -hmm. But it struck me this idea of how much rewriting or new writing needs to take place. So in the fictionalized landscape, there are the sort of scientific approaches to this. But in the fictionalized landscape, which way do we go and what does that mean? Is that, I remember when I first discovered Nancy Friday and (laughs) what that changed for me in the world of, I think it may have been the first time I had even encountered a sexual narrative from the voice of a woman. Right, right. Like, Honestly, the first yeah. time in my life that I'd ever had that experience. And it was thrilling and amazing. And in that same way, this is a lot of what I've read from you 
has that that same poignancy of look at what the opportunity is here. Can you just also expand on that you're reading Homer Odyssey as well as it's like the first time. Oh, Emily Wilson's book, Translation of the Odyssey. It's the first time a woman translated it. And talk about the distinction. We that. They're yeah. huge. Well, the, the distinction. So the, the, the business of when Odysseus returns and slaughters all the suitors and slaughters all the maid servants that the suitors had been sleeping with, right? She has this whole take. There's been a lot of when her translation came out. There was a lot of talk about having her translate this meant these women, the servant girls in Ithaca, who had been sleeping with the suitors, were ultimately slaves. They didn't have any agency. Right. And so the suitors slept with all these slaves while they were encamping on Odysseus's house. And when Odysseus comes back, he slaughters them all because they had slept with his competition. And that <laughs> through the number of translations that we've had of the Odyssey over the years, that was always played down. Nobody talked about them having yes. agency or not. And it was Emily Wilson who was like, wait a second. Wait a these second. aren't servants. This, these are these like aren't sexual servants. goddesses. They didn't have it, yes. These these are women who have no agency. They've been basically mm. raped by all these men, and now they're being actually killed for it. You know, this is so, so great that you guys bring up these two sort of pillars of Western storytelling about who we are as a culture. So one is about Eve and the Garden of Eden, and the other one is about Homer and these figures of Penelope, who's this faithful wife. Right. And Helen of Troy, who's the opposite and who starts a world. And in both of these pivotal stories in the Western literary canon and cultural imagination, what we see is that female sexuality is perilous. It's dangerous. It has the power to upend the order of things and the world. Okay. When we talk about interventions, a very similar thing, you're talking about this new translation, right, of Homer, which I have yet to read and I'm excited to read. That's a lot of what happened in sexual science. Because of Title IX, women suddenly were in medical science, were in primatology, were in anthropology, were in social science, psychology, sexology. They entered the field and they said, hold on a second. That macaque who's in a cage and seems to be just standing there passively waiting, unenthused, waiting for a male to mount her, these female primatologists brought new forms of identification and compassion and insight to their science. They brought new forms of curiosity and they said, what would happen if you let that female non-human primate out of her cage literally? And what did we see? We saw that before she seems to be just standing there unenthusiastically, passively being mounted, if we let this female non-human primate out of her cage. We see that there's been an elaborate choreography where she basically tries to get the male to have sex with her. She initiates the copulation through an elaborate choreography, some of which is very unsubtle and which Daniel Bergner describes as at one point the female macaque kind of putting her hindquarters in the air and tapping out on the ground this Morse code message, serve me sexually right now. Okay, so when women scientists entered the fields that were sexual science or had anything to do with sexual Mm -hmm. science, because of their curiosity and compassion, they changed the science and improved it in the same way that this translation of Homer is improving our understanding 
of this really important work in the Western literary canon and the actual power relations that were going on. So it's really important that we have diverse people doing science, people of color, black people, trans people. The science is going to keep improving. And so many people are like, oh, it's just PC. Just PC. What are you talking about? We're talking about improving foundational works of literature for us in the industrialized West. We're talking about improving science that helps us understand who we are and that can prevent if we care so much about marriage, why aren't we telling people that women in the aggregate tend to get bored within years one to four of an exclusive cohabiting sexual partner? Wow. That's the number? Why it's one to four? One to four years wow. on average, whereas male desire for a female partner just sort of ebbs slowly over nine years. Why aren't we telling people this bit of counterintuitive science? The only reason it's counterintuitive um, is that we have been fed this lie, right? That women are passive and choosy and coy and they want monogamy and they want to lock it down, whereas men want to spread their seed. So if we get this accurate science that's in large part coming from women getting into sexual science, it serves everyone. And same with translations of Homer. So- yeah. And Love same that. with rethinkings of Eve. What if Eve wasn't evil? What if she was a brilliant adventurous who brought everything that makes our lives exciting and interesting? What it means to be human. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. And, and redefines what it is to be a woman and redefines what it is to be human. So I love it when new perspectives are introduced. It's completely important. And this is why we have to diversify science and translation and publishing and all these things. It's not because it's, quote, just PC, unquote. It's because it improves the world and, then we and go our back, understanding of ourselves. And we cycle back to the pill in relationship to starting that virtuous circle, to allowing that virtuous circle to even begin that cycle of everything you just said about inclusion in terms of the data. Yeah, like right? women. Comes out of the pill. Women you know, all can't, these women yeah. are only in science because the pill existed in a way to let people to. And because of Title IX, right? And because of second wave feminism. And because we're drawing, I would argue, on a deep evolutionary groove, which is that inequality between men and women is just a recent aberration in the very long arc of the human calendar. Equality and parity were the rule until a mere 12,000 years ago. And that's a blink of an eye for an anthropologist. So whenever whenever anybody tells you, well, men have always been in charge of women, men have always sexually assaulted women, this is just the way things are. Men have always been power hungry. People have always been selfish. That is not true. I urge people to read my book and the work of other anthropologists who show us that for a very long time, parody is the soup we were simmered in. Can you talk about the plow um, and that kind of like where that division really happened? Yeah, sure. So in 2013, a group of diverse social scientists from UCLA and Harvard had a look at plow ecologies, right? So here's the backstory to understanding this study. Our sexuality isn't just in us. Our sexuality will express itself differently depending on our ecology. So among the Himba of Northern Namibia, where female, quote, infidelity, unquote, is a fact of life, women are expected to have lovers. Many, many of them do. Women have 
babies by their lovers when they're married, it's expected and there's even a term for it because it's so common, right? There's a reason for that. Among the Himba, men don't pass their cattle on to their children. They pass their cattle on to their sister's children. They don't have to worry about, um, you know, patrimony. Mister, yeah, they don't have to worry about patrilineality and passing it along to the wrong person and misdirecting their investment, for example. Okay. And also among the Himba, husbands are at the cattle station for a long time, and it makes no sense to try to mate guard from a distance. What makes more sense to increase your reproductive success is, okay, have a, have a girlfriend at the cattle station and just look the other way uh, when your wife has a boyfriend. And if your wife ends up having a baby by her boyfriend, well, it's better not to kill somebody, which is going to be a big problem. What would be probably better is to just accept this because that boyfriend is going to take not just his kid with her, but your kid to the doctor if you're at the cattle station and somebody gets sick. He's going to provision not just his kid, but your kid, if there's a drought, right? Or a crop failure or something like that happens. Okay, so among the Himba, female infidelity, because of the ecology, it's not even infidelity. It's one of the ways that women can behave, right? But in the United States, right? If a woman with a very socially conservative husband, or even a not a socially conservative husband, who has been fed a narrative that women are supposed to be monogamous, and we have been simmered recently in the soup that women are supposed to be monogamous and that they're your property. Where did this idea that women are the property of men come from? And to make a long story short, it came from plow culture, right? When we developed reserves, instead of just gathering what we needed for the day, we had crops and all of a sudden we had these reserves. Oh my God, do not touch my reserve. This is my reserve, right? So we developed storage and we developed the idea of property, the grain that we had, the perimeter of our farming, right? Our woman, our boys and girls that we were going to pass our grain down to, right? And don't mess with that. Now, in that context, a woman having more than one partner completely upends the whole social order, which is totally different from the Himba. So what these uh, cool economists and other social scientists at UCLA and Harvard put out in their paper in 2013 was, hey, guess what? Anywhere there was a plow, we saw people having really retrograde ideas and agreeing to two really retrograde ideas. One was when jobs are scarce, men should have the priority and have the job. Two, men are just better political leaders than women. We saw that belief in plow-based cultures or cultures that had previously been plow-based or cultures where a husband or a wife had ancestors who were part of a plow-based ecology. And they controlled for all kinds of other factors. They controlled for, well, maybe just um, really patriarchal cultures choose the plow, or maybe this culture just has more jealous guys. They controlled for religion, for, they or can, I can or imagine religion. so many things. Yeah. Exactly. And what these scientists found was when they controlled for all the other potential variables, it was the plow that was causing gendered inequality, even generations later and thousands of miles away. Okay. So as my friend, the anthropologist Helen Fisher often says, the plow was the worst thing that ever happened in terms of female fates and women having 
sexual autonomy. That is my belief. I throw my hat in there with the social scientists who believe that about the plow. It makes me think so many things. One is <laughs> how much that changed a sense of community. And maybe you've talked about this, but if monogamy is essential and required of me, then I no longer have, we no longer have this sense of community. And you mentioned it. It's like in the the hunter gatherers in Namibia. I'm sorry, I don't remember. Those are nomadics. I mean, nomadic pastoralists. But in Untrue, I also talk about uh, the Kumsan, oh, yes, who yes. were uh, traditional hunter gatherers until they started having relationships with Bantu people who are agriculturalists. Uh huh. It changes everything because now, as you said, I'm looking out for my money or you know my extra. Your reserves. My reserves, yeah, mm -hmm. from the farm and the plow, and I'm no longer looking out for the whole. I'm looking out for my property. And how that changes the sense of community and this how we is, work together. Yeah, this is and, such a great point. Because, sorry, was I interrupting you? Um, no, that's okay. We can come back to the okay. other point of that. All right. So I want to address this point of community. We evolved, paleoanthropologists, anthropologists, evolutionary biologists, by now this is no longer a fringe idea. We evolved as cooperative breeders. We evolved having multiple partners and raising our offspring cooperatively. How did those two things go together? Sex isn't just about reproduction. Sex isn't just about improving your reproductive success. If it were, there wouldn't be millions of people who identify as gay or queer or non-binary or gender fluid. Sex is not just about the things that evolutionary biology has traditionally said it was. Sex is about social bonding and pleasure, right? Okay, so when our ancestresses had sex with more than one male, more than one male was like, okay, that might be my baby or it might not. There's a chance it is. I had sex with her a few times. I'm going to help raise that baby, right? So that was a big part of cooperative breeding. The other part of cooperative breeding was that sisters, aunties, and grandmothers gave a hand. And there's a lot of thought that cooperative breeding included nursing, cooperative nursing, which as a person who nursed two babies for a year, I can tell you, boy, I wish <laughs> I could have used some help. Right. Yep. So this was our sense of community. We lived in, for most of our evolutionary prehistory, we lived in these rangy bands where cooperation was the rule of thumb and it helped us get through and it gave us a leg, like I said, over say Australopithecus afarensis, for example, right? And we're here and other previous um, homo species, like obviously Australopithecus afarensis was a bad example because it's not a, a homo species, but we're here because we were able, we discovered through our flexibility, ooh, cooperative breeding hold on, this is working, having sex with multiple partners. And it wasn't just that it was efficacious. It felt good, right? It feels good when you're having sex with more than one partner because we evolved a clitoris because if sex isn't pleasurable, we won't have it, right? So cooperative breeding is, I'll say it again, the soup we were simmered in. Now we've changed up our ecology and that's okay. That's what we do. That's what Homo sapiens does. We change up our ecology. But I do believe that you cannot ignore the soup we were simmered in. You cannot ignore 
what was successful for us in the past and ask us to just suddenly swerve to sexually exclusive dyads, there's going to be some blowback, right? (laughs) And so one of the reasons that the sexually exclusive dyad feels bad is it's a lot more work raising a kid. Men and women both have a need for sexual variety and novelty and adventure. And I get into that a lot in Untrue and the studies about it. Being in the sexually exclusive dyad really isolates us. It isolates us from our kin. It isolates us from our friends. And now suddenly I'm putting on my husband this expectation that he be everything to me. And my husband is putting on me this expectation that I should be everything to him. And don't get me wrong, this happens in gay and lesbian couples, queer couples, trans couples as well. Although maybe like in the case with gay men, we see a lot more pushback, oppressed people having been oppressed and having to be creative about their mere survival can sometimes be really sexually creative, like the way that gay men basically taught straight people about disclosing non-monogamy and having uh, a committed relationship that's not monogamous. But all that said, back to how isolating a sexually exclusive dyad can be, you know, it's the reason that people sometimes will tell me, I feel like I'm dying. They'll say, I'm so tired. I'm so sexually dead. I don't feel happy. I must have postpartum depression. So these people come to me, mostly it's women of babies and toddlers and sometimes preschool age kids. And they tell me, I'm so sad. I feel so sad. Why am I so sad? Why am I so angry? Why is this so hard? And it's like, honey, you have been asked to totally change the game. Literally nobody was expecting moms and dads to do this on their own without a huge community supporting them or a big community supporting them. Until a blink of an eye ago, you are part of a very difficult, very novel social experiment that I'm not sure is going to succeed. So when people talk about how, oh, monogamy is normal and natural and we evolved in dyads, we now know. Dyad is just a fancy word for a sexually exclusive couple. Sorry, you guys. We know that we did not evolve in sexually exclusive couples. This is all new. This is all hard. It doesn't mean we can't do it. But that's the reason that we're so depressed and sad and stressed when we have toddlers and babies. We need lots and lots of people to help us. And arguably, we need novel sexual partners at a certain point to help us or to have at least novel, adventurous, varied sexual experiences, even if it's with our partner. That's, uh, I keep saying it, but that's the sauce we simmered in. This is one of my favorite products. It was formulated with powerful plant ingredients that help regulate blood sugar, control cravings, and lower body fat. Some of the signals for a slowing metabolism are low energy, feeling bloated, like you maybe have slow digestion. Those are all signals that your metabolism is slowing down. So our Sakara Metabolism Super Powder helps to rev up your metabolism while supporting weight loss, mental clarity, and sustained energy. And it's easy and delicious to enjoy. It's made using high-quality cacao, so it's very chocolatey. I drink coffee, so for those of you that do, I highly suggest whipping it into your latte. But if you're a smoothie drinker, add it to a smoothie 
or you can just add it to a chilled nut milk and enjoy. For a limited time, we're gifting you $15 off your first purchase of our best-selling metabolism super powder. Simply go to sakara.com forward slash MSP and at checkout, use the code podcast15. That's S-A-K-A-R-A.com forward slash MSP and enter podcast15 at checkout for $15 off your first purchase. Can you talk about some of the narratives we have to unlearn in order to not feel, hmm, how do I phrase this? What's at risk? Can I jump a question on top of this? Yeah, maybe I can answer them both. So my question is like, what's at risk Mm -hmm. in non-monogamy? Like, why is everyone so scared? And there's lots of people who are not scared, but Mm -hmm. why are many, as you said, not even willing to discuss it? What's at risk if we decide that we are, this experiment is not working okay. in your mind? Got it. And what are the key unlearnings in your mind that we have to really unlearn? Okay. Yep. Go ahead. And your question, Damien. Um, uh, adjacent. We clearly have lots of examples of what parody is not. What does parody actually look like? Okay. I got it. I got you guys. Specifically, I have a specific question. There's a researcher in here who was talking about the self-reflexive sexuality, female self-reflexive sexuality. Oh, that women are into looking at themselves when right. they have sex. Which more than men are. Right. Which I found fascinating. And there's a lot there, right? When you when you yes. when that is adjacent to parody, okay. you know, that sense of objectification, self-objectification. Yeah. Is there a, a jumping off to unlearn or we have to deal with where we are and we have to evolve into something? Okay, got it. I got you guys. And your questions are actually really related. Okay, this question about risk. In other words, what's at risk if we try non-monogamy? Is that your question? Maybe it's like for the culture, like what's mm-hmm. at risk? Okay, if we were to be more accepting of non-monogamy here's what would be at risk yes because there's also this need to label it to like i feel like we're in this shift right now where you have to represent yourself as monogamous non-monogamous open really like there's all these titles Mm -hmm. and it feels like we're just keeping everything in this like container yeah instead of like i really chafe at all of those titles yeah okay let's use a really unlikely test case to answer three of these questions our test case is going to be dolly parton Okay, great. Love me some Dolly. (laughs) When I was a kid, there was all this speculation that Dolly Parton was having an affair with Burt Reynolds, that Dolly Parton was in a quote, unquote, weird marriage, that Dolly Parton was married, but where was her husband? This was around what time? This was in the 70s. Okay. Okay. And there was as much speculation about her sex life as there was about her really large breasts and her blonde hair and all that. Okay, what did Dolly Parton do? First of all, she showed us what was at risk. She started this conversation about what is a weird marriage and what is a, quote, normal, unquote, marriage, right? And many people came down on the side of monogamy as a normal marriage. And what she's doing or seems to be doing is not normal. What did Dolly Parton do? She said absolutely nothing. Why? Because she knew what was at risk. Her career, sure, but she didn't want to take the fall for toppling the entire social order like Helen of Troy or Eve. 
So she zipped it and made jokes about it and just laughed it off. And I admired that so much and I admire it to this day because she showed what's at risk for women who step outside of the relatively new container. A lot is at risk. She could have lost everything, even though she's privileged, right? But she could have lost her career. She could have lost her reputation. And she could have toppled the entire social order, basically, you know, if there were more women like her. So that's what's at risk. Power, right? Okay. The other question. Sorry. Yeah. But what's at risk for the culture? That's what's at risk for The order of things. The order of things. The order of things is at risk. How can men maintain their power if women are truly sexually autonomous and writing their own meal card about how they want to be, sexually speaking? This makes me so think about all the things that we're risking in this narrative. I just want to draw this back for a second. When we're talking about couples, when you're talking about from the males, the idea of non-monogamy, this is from the female point, the risk of including women within that. When you think about a couple engaging non-monogamy, it's the order of things for sure, right? There's some Monogamy is the order of things. It's a baseline. We think that monogamous people are healthier. We think they have healthier relationships. We think they'll have better outcomes. We think that child rearing is better. They're trusted more. I read somewhere recently. Culturally, even therapists tend to pathologize people, couples, individuals who are non-monogamous. That's right. Your your take on the therapy stuff that you went to was a bunch of therapists sitting in a room Mm -hmm. and they seemed like some of the more judgmental people that I've run across. Yes. I mean, some of them were open-minded, but there was a lot of judgment. And I've interviewed many, many therapists, whether they're psychoanalysts or LMFTs or people doing EFT psychotherapy. I have encountered a lot of therapists who believe that monogamy is healthier and that people who are non-monogamous, there's some kind of pathology there. Yes. Did you want me to go back and answer your other questions? Okay. So what does parity look like? We cannot truly have parity if we do not accept people's sexual autonomy. I'm not talking about anarchy, relationship anarchy. I'm talking about a lot of people will say, oh, yes, women should get paid what men get paid. Oh, yes, women should be able to run for really high, important political office, right? Oh, no. And they'll pay lip service to these forms of equality. And then they see a TV show about a woman who's, quote, cheating, unquote. And even feminists will say, oh, that whore. Oh, my God, what a slut right? So to me, tolerating female sexual autonomy, including women seeking out variety and novelty and adventure, tolerating that or not is the true metric of whether we have gender parity in our culture. Go ahead and say, oh yeah, women should get a hundred cents on the dollar. Go ahead and say, yeah, sure, a woman can be president. But then slam up against that wall of women saying, we're married, um, but I also have a girlfriend and see how people respond to that. That tells you whether you have gender parity. What does parity actually look like? Women being able to do that. What parity also looks like is women having really high rates of labor force participation. And I don't mean menial labor. I mean, CEOs right? And mid-level management, but at the highest levels, what is female labor force participation? How much are women able to be at the top of a corporation or a podcast or 
any place that they're working that's not being a housekeeper, say, which we are happy to let women dominate in that field. Meaningful rates of meaningful political participation. Now, I don't mean how often do we let a woman be the treasurer of the PTA, right? Which is a very important thing to be able to be. I'm talking about how many women do we let be president of the World Bank, right? Or Deutsche Bank, or Bank of America, or any Forbes 50 company. In the United States, how are we doing? Pathetically. It's so bad. I mean, even venture capital, less than 3% go to women. And I'm not just talking about white women getting rewards. I'm talking about all women. How often are we allowed to be at the top? Have we really closed the wage gap? Not when Native women get 55 cents on the dollar. Okay, where are we in the United States? What does parity look like in the United States? We don't have it. We rank pathetically. I'll say it again. We are not anywhere near the top 20 countries in the world for female labor force participation, meaningful female labor force participation, and meaningful female political participation. I don't care that in midterms a lot more women got in. We worldwide, in on some metrics of labor force and political participation, women rank lower than in Uganda, Rwanda, Burundi, some of the world's much poorer nations. Now, those numbers are even more pathetic when you consider that we're one of the three richest countries in the world, right? So that's what I'll say about what does equality really look like. You will see that women have sexual autonomy in contexts where they have super high rates of labor force and political participation. But what do we come from? A plow culture where the beliefs that when jobs are scarce, men should have them and men are just naturally better political leaders. Those two beliefs prevail. And those two beliefs just fester. They are a great place for the notion that women should stay at home and men should be out active in the world, making the rules and running the world. Those three ideas all go together and they're linked to plow ecology. And that's why we needed Title IX. And that's why we needed second wave feminism and need third and fourth and fifth wave intersexual feminism because we're up against this incredible enculturation from plow culture. That's the way I see it. It makes me think about all the ways that men are hurting in this current narrative, this Great current point. experiment too. It's, yeah. it's not my question around what's at risk if we let go of these narratives. It's like there's so much we have inherently decided to mm-hmm. risk, you know, yeah. like sexual empowerment for both genders, all genders. Yes. I mean, look, there's so much. I've always said that when we sexually profile women, we're sexually profiling men. When there's bad sexual science, when the sexual science tells us, and we know this to be untrue, and I get into it and untrue, for a long time, because of Darwin, we believed that females of most species were naturally coy and asexual less sexual and choosy, and men were naturally more pugnacious and sexually assertive and sexual. Having those just-so stories in the background, those misconceptions, which science, and I get into all the science that unravels those two beliefs about men and women, those are still motoring. The way we raise boys and girls 
the way we sex segregate. There's sex segregation on the Upper East Side of Manhattan that I write about in Primates of Park Avenue. And Darwin is kind of at fault for that. So science has a lot of explaining to do. And thankfully, science is much more diverse and inclusive than it has been, but it needs to get more. So yes, how would we be freeing little boys if we told them what I told my kids? And I'm not to pat myself on the back, but I always told my kids, when you grow up, if you decide to get married, you know, and you have a husband or a wife, where do you think you might want to live? Or like when you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, what kind of things do you think you guys might like to do together? It makes a big difference. Rather than just assuming. But uh, look, I was swimming against the current at that point. And what's amazing is to see how things have to, I'm not, again, I'm not patting myself on the back. It was just something something that was important to me. But we've seen how things can change and how positive it can be. And that's a really important thing in terms of raising kids. You guys have two little kids. And thanks to Title IX, thanks to feminism, thanks to Black Lives Matter, thanks to Me Too, your kids are going to have more options, more friendships. And not live a lie. Like this is what I keep in my brain coming back to is like, those women you're saying postpartum who are depressed or Sarah who feels like something's wrong with her, who knows how her husband feels? Her husband might also feel like something's wrong with him. Yeah. And it's like, so we're all living this lie thinking something, either we can't have the thoughts we want to have or when we do have them, something's wrong with us. Mm-hmm. And it's it's living this lie instead of having yeah. the option to even live our truth. You know, part of my mission in life, you asked me in the beginning, but I'll reiterate, part of my mission in life is to use social science to help women and men feel less weird about who they are, less weird about how they parent, less weird about how they have sex, less weird about how they want to have sex, less weird about how they step parent. It's really important to have the tools of social science so that we can liberate ourselves. Back to the kids. One of the reasons I'm so excited about this book is we have a three-year-old daughter. And so now for the first time in my life, I have to really engage this stuff. And this is all even greater consequence for me off of the love of my daughter. And so with a three-year-old, I've been watching a lot of Disney movies. And so I wonder about these Disney movies because there seems to have been a fairly large break with the past in regards to how characters, like the characterizations of a lot of these. uh, The Little Mermaid versus Moana. The Little Mermaid or like Moana. Sleeping Beauty, right? Is that what it was called? She just passively lies there, and then this and she's like, beautiful. That's and she's all she beautiful. needs to be. Right. She's passive and beautiful, and then she gets kissed, and her whole life begins. So yeah. what I what I wonder though is, I mean, these are Disney mainstream productions coming down the pike, and so I wonder about the new intersection, ones. the new ones, right? Mm-hmm. That in this conversation of what is the next wave of translation and storytelling. Somehow it seems Mm. to be in the pipeline in major corporate ways. Yes. It's coming through Disney. Because you know what? Because it's profitable. But that's good. Put the pressure on to change dominant cultural narrative. And at the same time, keep your eye on the ball. Is Disney a good place for women to work? Is Disney a good place for people of color to work? Are there people in high positions at Disney who are women of color? Is Disney just putting this out because they can make money on it or are they putting their money where their mouth is, right? So it's great. And I'm so glad to see these changes, but I want to see deep systemic changes, right? And that we know from history that deep systemic changes, we have a lot of skin in the game. Deep systemic changes can 
change our relationship to something as personal as sexual pleasure. And I wanted to say something about having a three-year-old girl or a toddler boy. I brought you some sex toys today and they're right here on the table as we talk. And I hear all these stories from people who say that their toddler or preschool age child discovered their sex toy. And often the toddler or school age child is like bringing it out at a dinner party and like using it as a microphone to sing or saying like, hey, look what (laughs) mommy uses, right? It's a great opportunity for parents to tell the truth in ways that will benefit children without confusing or overwhelming them. So let me give an example just for people with toddlers listening. Say you're three-year-old daughter comes out with mom or dad sex toys because sex toys can be awesome for men. And here's what you can do. You can say, oh, that's a toy. It's a toy that grown-ups use and I use it to make my body feel better. And follow your child's curiosity. And if your three-year-old child says like, what part of your body? You can say, you can use it on different parts of your body. I use it on my vulva. Yeah. What's a vulva? It was our toddler's first word. Oh, I love that. What's all right. <laughs> wow. You guys are doing something right. But yeah, you can have these honest, uncomfortable conversations and they will be life altering and they will change society. Yeah. And right? it's uncomfortable for you. It's not uncomfortable for them. Right. It's, it, Unless you make it's it an for, opportunity for, to learn. Oh, yeah. wow. Like grownups use this. They're learning all the appropriate things that these are not developed for children, but that they're not shameful. That when you grow up, you can use one. You can say it feels really good. You can teach what a vulva is. You can have a three-dimensional model of the clitoris and say this is part of a woman's body at a certain point when your child becomes curious about that and asks. It's a cliche to say it, but these are all opportunities. And all the lies in the sexual science about who women are and who we are supposed to be and who we naturally are, all those lies are opportunities to improve the science and improve our lives. I want to say one thing that has really been bugging me about wellness. Mm, Tell me. Wellness culture. First of all, everything. The anti-science, the cultural appropriation of philosophies from India, from Western and Eastern and Northern African cultures without acknowledging the context. Straight up racism and yoga, which has been written about. These things all bother me. These are retrograde ideologies happening in a container wellness that appears to be progressive. And new. Right. So here's another thing that happens in wellness. And it goes so well. Whenever you see racism, whenever you see cultural appropriation, you will also see retrograde ideas about gender roles and about sexuality. And what's really bugging the shit out of me in wellness right now is women shaming other women for using vibrators. As that if, happens? Yes. That's awful. And shaming other women about accurate, being anti-science. Being anti-science, if there's somebody who's anti-science, I don't care if they're in wellness, you're going to see that they have retrograde ideas about gender and racist ideas. They all go together, right? So there is a group of women on social media and in the wellness community who if you post data, for example, that less than 20% of women can have an orgasm from intercourse alone. Intercourse is not all that. That's the number? Yeah. 
less 18% of women, only 18%, a minority of women can have an orgasm from intercourse alone. What do you think these women say? You're doing it wrong. Oh, no, that's not true for me. Okay, so here's like white women centering their own experience against science. And their privilege. And their privilege. Then the next thing that happens is then the judgment. Well, all women can learn to have an a vaginal right, right, orgasm. Right, right. Oh my God. If these women in wellness don't stop talking about vaginal orgasms, honey, all orgasms are clitoral. They come from your vast internal clitoris, vaginal orgasm, making that the be all end all. Honey, that was something that Sigmund Freud was doing in the late 19th century. And it needs to end and it needs to not get a toehold in wellness and telling women that if you just try to get through your blocks, you can have a vaginal orgasm. It's the most natural, wonderful thing. It's not. Women can have orgasms a lot of different ways. All those ways are wonderful. And who cares that it's more, quote, natural, unquote, to masturbate with your hands? Who freaking cares? It wasn't natural for me to get anesthesia or whatever it is that I needed, whether it's local, for a root canal, right? And maybe I wanted to have an epidural. What I'm saying is we have a problem in wellness and it's racism and it's misogyny. And it's misogyny for white women in wellness to be telling other people, other women, how to masturbate, how to have orgasms, creating a, a hierarchy of sexuality, being anti-queer. We can't have it. Wellness has a problem and white people in wellness need to fix it. And I'm so glad to be on your show <laughs> and to be able to say that. I think like this, this, this like could have its own episode because I, on one hand, very much agree with you. We are rooted in science, but there also has to be room where what we call spirit for intuition, for curiosity. Sure, and they can go together. Especially to your point, where so much of our current science has been led by men and is old science. Um, and so women having an intuition that the sexual science, women saying, I know you're saying that it doesn't benefit female fruit flies to mate multiply, even though it did. I know you're saying that. And I know you're saying that it doesn't benefit female langers to mate multiply, but I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I'm seeing females mate multiply and I mate multiply. I'm having this intuition mm -hmm. based on my own experience. It's curiosity and questioning. Curiosity, empathy, compassion. Not and directing. sometimes, as Sarah Hurdy said to me, sometimes her intuition that she would go with that when she was at a fork in the science and she being a woman who had sex and a woman primatologist who had watched non-human female primates was like, I'm going to follow what I think based on my experience here. These things are not incompatible. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. Yeah. So sorry if I cut you off. No, I, I love that. I think we're, uh, sadly I could go on for much longer, but <laughs> let's, I'd love to hear your light work for yes. us and our listeners. Yes. Light work, which is a nicer term for homework. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like you gave so many, <laughs> but what's the one you want to leave everyone with? Read the updated science about female sexuality. Find a source that's accessible and fun. You could start with Sarah Hunter Murray's book called Not Always in the Mood about men and how they don't always want to have sex, so stop profiling them. You could start with my Atlantic article, Women the Board Sex. Get some accessible 
updated science about who women are sexually and it can blow your mind and change your world. Read a book like The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia, which is about short stories about black women and sexuality in the black church. This is accessible and delicious. You can read fiction, you can read nonfiction, but but broaden your horizons about sexual science. Sexual science has changed so much in the last 50 years, almost entirely due to women. It's so fun. Just dive into it. And I think my book on True might be a good place to start just because it'll refer you to a lot of other places. And just stop believing old, stale think about who people are, sexually speaking. Love it. Nice. Thank you so much, Wednesday. Sure. Thanks for having that me, That was you amazing. Guys. It was great. Thanks for the gift. Oh, gosh. You know what I forgot to say? Guess what I ate when I was writing on True? When I was in the final hours, the final two months... No way. Yes. Wow. I ordered Saqqara and I ate it every day. Oh my God. That's so beautiful. Three meals a day. Well, no wonder we're so connected for to the this. last month and a half or two months that I was finishing oh God, on true and I couldn't think about cooking. I didn't want to sit down with my family. I wanted things that tasted great and that were nutritious and that helped my brain, I felt. And so um, wow. you, you were part of me writing on True. Well, so so I, I love bringing it full circle yeah. and sitting down with you to talk about the book. Thank you that for keeping so me circle. nourished and keeping my taste buds satisfied and my brain firing. Thanks for that, guys. I'm so grateful that Sakara got to be a part of you putting out this work. Thank you. Cheers. Today, we're getting back to the basics of Sakara, And so we wanted to share a bit about our Sakara Signature Nutrition Program for all of those listeners that are new to us. We created this program after healing ourselves to help others feel the same transformation that we experienced through the power of food as medicine. This program is based on the science behind a whole food, plant-rich diet and has been crafted around our proprietary nine pillars of nutrition which focuses on things like nutrient diversity and eating the rainbow, eating your water and getting enough sulfur-rich veggies into your diet, as well as cultivating body intelligence in order to have true mind, body, and soul transformation. The Sakara Signature Nutrition Program makes clean eating easy. It's entirely free from meat, gluten, dairy, refined sugar, pesticides, harmful chemicals, and GMOs. The menu is chef-crafted and changes weekly to highlight seasonal ingredients and recipes so you never have to sacrifice taste for eating healthy. If you're interested in learning more about our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program, head to saqqara.com to see how you can customize the program to fit your needs and lifestyle. That's S-A-K-A-R-A dot com. And for a limited time, we wanted to give you all a gift of transformation so use the code PODCAST20 at checkout for 20% off your first order of Sakara Life. I think so many of us are so busy these days trying to take care of the entire world around us, whether you're a busy professional or a mom. I encourage you to give this gift of nutrition to yourself. You deserve to feel amazing in your body And when you nourish yourself, then you're able to better take care of the world around you and share your special gifts with the world. 